we have inadvertently impeded opportunities to learn uh, by imposing too much precision in the, the, the measurement approach. That if a bot can do the test better than a human, who do you think would do that task in the future? A human or a bot? If we can have that social connection with the majority, we're gonna see a rapid change at some point in the not too distant future. And it can happen anywhere. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud. I'm so excited about our guest today, Devin Vidika. Devin is the Chief Executive Officer at the Learner-Centered Collaborative, which uh, he founded uh, this summer, and he was the Chief Executive Officer of Altitude Learning. He was voted Superintendent of the Year when he was Superintendent at Vista Unified School District. I'm so excited about this conversation because it is rare that um, one has the opportunity to uh, share thinking and more to the point, a conversation with someone so incredibly intelligent as Devin. He seems to know uh, so much about so many things and is able to go in depth, but he does so with a sense of humility that is inspiring, a sense of openness to other ways of thinking, of gentleness that really has uh, gotten me to rethink uh, not just the content of what he says, but also the way he approaches it, that connection with mind and body. I will leave space to my for my conversation with Devin. Uh, if you like the podcast, subscribe, leave some stars. Uh, in the meantime, here's my conversation with Devin Vodica. Well, hi, Devin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're really excited to have you on the show um, and hear all your views about so many things. You're a prolific writer. Uh, you um, have, uh, have many connections and, and, and have books and, and started off as well uh, a new endeavor in your, in your life. Start off the uh, first question with uh, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So yeah, these, these sound like simple questions, but who are you is a deep that <laughs> could be deep. Uh, I think simplest way to describe it is, uh, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I've got two kids, 19 and 13, uh, live in North County, San Diego, uh, come from a family of immigrants. My dad's Czech, my mom's Dutch, grew up in a small town in Northern California. And uh, both my parents started out in technology they were and then ended up being computer teachers so I just grew up in the world of ed tech knew at a very young age I was going to be in education myself and uh, have really you know spent my career trying to figure out how we better serve each and every each and every learner uh, and my my job is I'm the CEO of learner-centered collaborative and we envision a world where all learners, know themselves, thrive in community, and actively engage in the world as their best selves. And we work with about 130 school systems across the United States uh, to try to empower all learners uh, to know themselves. And, and so that's probably the simplest, simplest description of who am I. And what you mentioned there when you started off saying that who am I, you know, is a, is a deep question. Uh, it's a question that we ask on the podcast every time and, and we get different answers. But the fact that you unpacked that getting to know learners who they are, it shows that there is depth there. So I want to get to that in a bit. But this, the next question that I'd like to ask you, uh, as we try to get a shared understanding of educators who throw the word learning around quite a bit, what does learning mean to you? How do you define learning? 
Yeah, this is another deep question. Well, so this is this is great. I, uh, you know, I've read lots of books about uh, what is learning and what are the learning sciences, and I was really influenced uh, early in my career by, you know, a lot of the models by people like Marzano, but also really got into um, quantum physics, nonlinear math, uh, the science of cognition understanding neural networks from a, uh, a network perspective. And I think the theory that resonates the most with me is, is schema theory, the theory of learning, schema theory. And schema theory essentially posits that uh, our understanding is like a network and that it grows and adapts over time. And there are three fundamental ways in which it changes uh, and it's referred to as accretion, tuning, and restructuring. And if you think about it from a, the perspective of a, you know, a, a physical analog, you'd think of water, for example. So if you add water to a pot, that's accretion. You're not fundamentally changing the nature of it, but now there's more or less of it. Sometimes learning is like that. We learn more knowledge about a particular thing, but it doesn't change the nature of it. Tuning is a little more like turning the temperature up or down where it's still water, but now it starts to feel a little bit different. <clears throat> uh, and that tuning, changing the temperature <clears throat> in this example, uh, starts to affect the whole uh, of what's there. And then restructuring is like a phase shift. So, you know, when water turns into steam or when water turns into ice, all of a sudden it takes on very different property, properties entirely. And so learning is very much like that. Sometimes we're just taking in more. Sometimes what we're taking in changes the nature of the way that we understand things. And sometimes it is a phase shift entirely, which restructures the ways in which we view the world. And that sort of restructuring, we often talk about transformational learning. That's what we're really trying to get to. Uh, but just like with, you know, water is that example. When you turn the temperature up by one degree, you may not necessarily get to a phase shift, right? It depends what is the base state and what happens to it. So, you know, if you have two pots of water, a one degree change in one of them might turn it into steam and another one might not. And so it's not the treatment that leads to the change. It's, it's also the conditions uh, to begin with. So I really like schema theory. I like the idea that it's accretion, it's tuning, it's restructuring. All of those are powerful forms of learning. Um, so there's three things that I want to pick up on. Uh, the first is this idea of identity. Um, the second is this idea of quantum physics as well, which is funny because uh, that I've, I've been reading a bit about quantum physics and, and, and I have to say it's, it's uh, over my head, but I try to, you know, hang on by my fingernails. <laughs> and, and, then, and then this idea of... Um, inserting knowledge without doing anything with it and whether there's whether there's any value in that altogether um but we'll we'll do it probably in uh in in order uh, let's talk about this idea of of uh, of identity how does knowing oneself how does that um connect and relate to our ability to learn and to open up to learning this is a really powerful thing so in in living systems we are self-referencing and so the schema that we have is always referenced against our view of the self. That's our, our identity. And the two of them are 
interdependent. Uh, and so if you change the, the schema, you can also change the identity, but changing the identity also changes the ways in which we interpret the world. Uh, and so knowing the self is really foundational to powerful learning. And in the sort of traditional industrial model of education, we focus so much on content acquisition and sort of a standardized process that, that, that the, the identity development is often neglected. And so I often tell the story of being a, from an immigrant family in a small town and having different traditions and customs and different clothing and different food and feeling like it was uh, unseen, which made me feel unseen in that environment. And there are learners all over the place who have an identity that is not uh, reflected in their experience of school. And as a result, that disconnect leads to a lot of disengagement uh, through our systems. And so when we talk about learner-centered education, we often start with knowing oneself because that identity development is so fundamental to how we view the world, how we then uh, interact with the world. And if we're not intentional as educators and in our educational systems about cultivating that sense of identity, we're, we're going to have a dehumanizing experience that does not result in the types of changes that I think we really wanna see in uh, improving human potential. And in this one, I'm going to um, ask you about a tension that I have in my own mind, which is this idea of identity, which is very important to me. Um, I did a lot of, uh, of my, my academic work on identity and, and, how, and, and social movements and so forth. But if we bring it back to quantum physics and this idea of consciousness, there's no set form of identity. There's no set form of time and space. Time and space don't necessarily exist. Therefore, identity can't exist. It's all relative. Um, and, and, you know, this is going to be well beyond my capacity, but I'm going, to, I'm going to bring it down to this question. Identities change all the time. How do we manage this idea of knowing oneself with uh, the realization and the acceptance and maybe embracing the fact that our identities change as well, whether we realize it or not, or maybe we have to realize it for it to be identity, but how does that work? Yeah, well, so two different worldviews, sort of the Newtonian classical view of physics is things are very stable and steady uh, and, and, and uh, predictable. Quantum physics, the more that you understand about it, you realize the universe is inherently dynamic, uh, unpredictable, uh, all based on probabilities and constantly moving and changing. Uh, and so if you, if you embrace sort of the quantum physics view of the universe, then naturally, our identities should change because everything is, is changing. Uh, and that's part of the, the nature of the universe in that view of, of, of quantum physics. Uh, but in both quantum physics and, 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 and just common sense, the ways in which it changes are dependent on its history as well. So our identities, yes, they're dynamic, they're evolving, they're changing based on our experiences, but they're also, um, transcending what we had previously. And so uh, they're not completely disassociated from our, our history, if that makes any sense. So every stage is very important, very critical, and uh, influential in, in what happens next. Um, 
So I don't see those as being intention at all. I think that is, uh, that's kind of a beautiful thing to imagine that we can be evolving in our identities just as the universe is, is uh, pulsing and growing uh, uh, over time as well. And this also brings us back as Jeremy Lynch, who, who wrote a, a fabulous book that I, that I just finished and he was on the podcast, Web of Meeting, brings it back to Taoism and Buddhism as well, um, how, how quantum physics and, uh, and, and the ancient wisdoms come about. So then I'm gonna pick you up on this Newtonian mechanics and I'm gonna bring it to assessment. I'm, I'm gonna put something out there and see, see how you react to it. Um, and, and it's a bit contentious on purpose. Um, th th this idea of assessment in, in, our, in, in, the world, in, in the world that we have is let's put kids through assessment and then we should be able to predict where their growth trajectory is because of this reductionist idea uh, of Newtonian mechanics. Uh, there's what um, this this famous story of uh, of Lassalle who said that if there was a demon who was intelligent enough to know where everything was in the universe and and you know the the velocity and, and direction it was going that he could predict you know the universe forever what was going to happen. Um, so assessment based on we have data and those data allow us to predict where people are going. But if you switch to a more quantum physics type model of probability, that doesn't work at all. What are your views? What are your views on that? Like, is it possible that quantum physics that we can't understand helps us kind of rethink this idea of assessment and trajectories? Yeah, this is. I'm just smiling because this is a fun topic. Uh, so the first thing uh, that is different in a quantum view of the world, and this is uh, validated with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, is that measurement actually affects reality. And so in a Newtonian view, where again, things are more steady, stable, uh, predictable, the assessment is, is independent of what's happening. In a quantum view, and based on Heisenberg's uh, uncertainty principle, you recognize that anytime you assess something, you disturb it, which then changes the trajectory. And so, uh, in real uh, simple terms, basically Heisenberg established that uh, when you're measuring uh, a subatomic particle, you, you the more precise your measurement is, the more that you impede its velocity or its momentum. And so the act of measuring it changes its velocity or momentum. Uh, and the more precise that you try to be, the more that you disturb it. And I think that concept has significant parallels for what we do in education. So if you think about these high stakes episodic tests that we try to do where we, you know, they're very time intensive and we try to get very specific about what is the position of this learner relative to some set of standards that affects their learning momentum, because instead of continuing to engage in the world and uh, acquire more knowledge and more experiences, they're stopping and they're, you know, filling in bubbles on a test. Uh, and so, you know, you could contrast that with uh, something like observing a, a, a student in a classroom uh, and not interacting with them, which is also a form of measurement. You don't get the same precision in what the student knows and what they're able to do, but you, you're not affecting their experience in the same way. So the less precise the measurement, the less you're impeding the learning momentum. And I would say that we have uh, 
often been so oriented to trying to get precise about measurement of learning that we have inadvertently impeded opportunities to learn uh, by imposing too much precision in the, the, the measurement approach. And so what I advocate for is more of a balanced uh, type of perspective where we should be taking into account the learner's uh, self-perception. We should be looking at peer feedback. We should be looking at educator observations. And instead of very precise episodic assessments that impede the learning, we should instead go with what uh, David Connolly calls cumulative validity. Let's just get a lot of input that is not very precise in a, in a particular uh, instance, but in aggregate ends up giving us a very good view of the learner. And if we shifted to that, I think we would have a more learner-centered assessment system, one that reflects what we know from uh, not only common sense, but also from quantum physics and, and Heisenberg's insights about how measurement affects reality. And what you describe happens every day in early years classrooms, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, you know, the, 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 when, you, when you look for good examples of humanistic, learner-centered, brain-based uh, learning experiences, it's often in early education that you see the best examples of that. Uh, and, and for some reason, as, you know, we get older, we, we think we need to impose more of these uh, kind of industrialistic uh, structures, which, which chip away at the humanity of the whole experience in many cases. The last guest on our podcast was Joanne McKechn, who uh, said that um, in her view, or, or what she proposes, this idea of authentic mixed method assessment, which is our job is not to test kids or to throw assessment on them, but to um, be open and receptive to any way that students might demonstrate the learning in ways that make sense to them. And we just collect that information. And from there, we figure out where things are. Uh, it, it seems like you guys are on the same track. Yeah, that, that totally resonates. And in fact, uh, you know, not to, to beat a dead horse here, but going to these like, uh, you know, filling in bubbles uh, type of testing, the types of measurements that we have used uh, are, they have to change. Uh, and so an example of that would be in uh, China, they do this uh, placement test, the Gao Cao, and uh, they have had bots competing to take this test. And over time, as AI gets more sophisticated, the bots now outperform people on these tests. And the reason that I mention that is that if a bot can do the test better than a human, who do you think would do that task in the future? A human or a bot? It's more likely uh, going to be done by one of these AI bots. Uh, and so why would we spend all of our time uh, trying to help people develop these skills that they won't use in the future when there are so many genuine needs in the world, uh, you know, related to profound, profound problems that artificial intelligence is not going to be able to address. Like it, it, it is to our own benefit to orient our learning to the types of things that humans uh, will need to be addressing. You know, how do we, 
how do we improve the lives of others? How do we address climate change? How do we, um, you know, create more just and equitable societies? These are things that that we as humans need to resolve, and so we should be trying to develop the capabilities of our learners to be ready for those types of uh, very important challenges in the future. And this brings us to that question of content and application and, and, and the work that you've done on competencies. Uh, I had a conversation yesterday where I put out there that content has no value. Now, many times people say that they, they assume, oh, because you can look anything up on a phone, but of course it has value. But I, I wanna go deeper than that and say content has no value until it is applied. So I could know how to cook, but if I don't cook, then that knowledge has no value. I transform uh, content into value when I apply it. But what you bring in is something different. You add a layer to this as well, because it's the applications, the competencies, right? So if AI knows content, that has no value for humans because it will be replaced, so it has to be applied. But you bring in solving problems. How do those three things mix together? Content, application, and, and the problems that we solve? Uh... Well, I mean, I like your provocative statements uh, <laughs> about, you know, things like content has no value unless it's applied. I think it, it, it invites challenge uh, because going back to the idea of uh, accretion, tuning and restructuring, accretion of knowledge can set the stage for tuning and restructuring over time and tied to identity because there is that reciprocal relationship between your schema and your identity. Your, your acquisition of knowledge can also influence your identity development, even if it's not applied. So I would, I would, uh, I would take a different perspective on that and say content acquisition can be valuable even without application. And yet taking that stance, I would say we should be uh, trying to go beyond accretion. We should be trying to get to that restructuring which tends to require application in context tied to real world challenges. That's how we stretch ourselves. That's how we, 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 we see the relevance of acquiring even more knowledge so that we can apply our habits and skills to improve our communities in meaningful ways. So, uh, you know, I would take the position that knowledge has value under any circumstances and knowledge has even more value when it is applied in context to solve meaningful challenges. But I guess this idea of taking knowledge and um, a position you get against your identity, that's in certain form, a form of application. You're, you're doing something because you're building your identity. So I, I'm going very loose on this, but, but I know that I was taught at some point about moles in chemistry, couldn't tell you anything about that whatsoever. So that was knowledge that was put in my head that clearly I don't remember, but that in itself has, unless it tells me that, you know, that doesn't resonate with me, chemistry doesn't resonate with me and, and I need to move on. It could be that. So, you know, the, a different example would be like, uh, if I go to the opera and I have that experience, I'm, I'm gaining some content knowledge about opera. I might reference that against my identity and say, I really like this and I want to learn more about it. And in that case, I might develop more specific knowledge about opera. I might also go to that experience and say, I don't like opera and I don't want to learn more about that. That there's value in both of those. Uh, you know, hopefully it would be like driving you in the direction of wanting to learn more. But sometimes learning that we're not 
energized by a particular experience is valuable in and of itself. And you may not apply the content knowledge from that domain again, but you're developing knowledge of yourself through the, the, uh, the filter of your own identity. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and this is why I love these conversations because I throw things out there uh, that aren't entirely resolved in my head and then it helps me move my own thinking, right? Uh, For sure. (laughs) For sure. And these are complex constructs, by the way. So, you know, uh, I, I'm also learning and growing, uh, all the time and, and willing to, uh, reconsider my own views of, of how these concepts interact. You brought up AI. You brought up this idea of whether or not we resonate with things. Uh, and if we look at um, you know a lot of the Yuval Noah Harari talking about uh, AI, how it's going to be able to read us, know us better than we know ourselves by looking at our facial features and, and things like that. Um, and, and, and you know the, our brain scans and, and the temperature and where we look at our eyes. What are your views on this idea of AI in education? Now, I, I want to take it a bit further than these um, supposedly uh, these applications that are supposedly about personalized learning that, you know, if you get 90%, you go to the next module, which are really just automated worksheets. Um, what, what are your views on, on, on the role of AI in the next X amount of years in education? Yeah. This is also a very good question. So in in my book, uh, Learner-Centered Leadership, I talk about this two different types of learning, one which I call uh, ladders and the other which I call knots. And ladders represent linear progression in in, in the concept. So take, you know, adding single-digit numbers and then adding two-digit numbers is relatively linear progression. You're going to have a hard time adding two-digit numbers if you can't add a single digit. Uh, and so you kind of have to step or, you know, move on each rung of the ladder to get to the next one. Those types of uh, problems tend to have right or wrong answers, and they're totally decontextualized. So adding three plus two is the same wherever you are is, is, is devoid of context. Uh, and AI is really good at resolving decontextualized questions that have a right or wrong answer and doing it faster and faster and faster uh, through machine learning. So those types of things are better done through computers because it's computational thinking. And so, there are some benefits in adaptive learning technology tools that do help you move through those linear progressions. But if you talk about anything that is contextualized, like how do we, uh, you know, improve or how do we reduce homelessness in a particular community? AI is not going to help us uh, with that. It's not a large data set in a particular community. There's no right or wrong answer. There are many different influences uh, and it just doesn't lend itself to machine learning. So uh, I think we should be spending more time in schools focusing on things like, well, how do we reduce homelessness in this area and less time on, you know, uh, multiplying six digit numbers by one another. If you understand the concept of multiplication, you know, you're not actually going to be doing that by hand uh, very often in the future, but 
you know, improving conditions in your community that are complex and dynamic is something that we, we all should be doing. So let's focus on that instead. I've uh, uh, approached this conversation with people uh, who are much better mathematicians than I am. And they tell me that it's important to understand the algorithm of, of math because math in itself is a language. Now, I don't speak this language, but they say it's a language. So, so how do we resolve this need to be able to work through it algorithmically, the language to be able to apply the math? Yeah, well, I do think data science is important and computational thinking is very important. And I think that understanding the, the potential applications and misapplications of artificial intelligence and, and, and uh, advances in computing are important for us to know. Um, so, you know, we, we should learn those things. Uh, but, uh, how do I say this? So, so think of, the, you were talking about like facial recognition. And uh, uh, I don't know if I would go even more abstract for a minute. So if, if you think about what is real, uh, I like Wilbur's view of an, uh, integral thinking. And he talks about internal, the things that are internal and individual, things that are internal uh, and collective, and then external collective and um, collective and external. So in things that happen inside of me are real, but there's no way for anyone other than myself to experience them. So it's something like sadness. Uh, I could feel sad, but I could be representing myself uh, to look like I'm happy because I can wear that, that mask. And another person might not know that I'm feeling sad and a bot, even with strong facial recognition, is not going to know that I'm sad. The only way that that uh, uh, the only way that that there's going to be sharing is, is through exchange of information uh, from internal to external, from individual to collective, uh, and no technology will ever bridge that gap. <laughs> it's just not uh, it. Uh, I should say no technology, no algorithm uh, will ever bridge that gap because no algorithm is going to be able to understand the dynamics of my internal consciousness. What if it tried to measure maybe the, no, I'm not, I'm not saying this is my position. I'm just being, uh, throwing it out there. What, what if we think of consciousness as nothing more than, uh, and by nothing more, you know, it's a, it's, it's a difficult one to start with, but, but biochemical reactions in your brain, and it could measure those and figure out what the biochemicals that, that lead to sadness. Uh, I think you can have correlations there, right? So you, you, can, you can have tractors that will tell you that the you know, person's heart rate is elevated and their, their temperature is, is uh, slightly increased, and that tends to be associated with certain types of experiences. But it will never be definitive. <laughs> it will only be like suggestive of potential states of, of being. Uh, another example might be instead of an emotional state, think of something like uh, curiosity. So how, how do you know if I'm curious? Uh, I might be intensely curious in my own mind and I may not be exhibiting those behaviors in any explicit way. Or it could be the opposite where I'm exhibiting 
external behaviors that make it look like I'm curious and internally I'm completely thinking of something different. Uh, and so, yeah, again, like what type of tracker or technology is going to be able to, to uh, parse that out? It's, <laughs> if there is going to be one, it is very, very far in the future, I, I believe. I could be wrong, but I believe it is very far away. <laughs> Uh, I want to go back also to this idea. You brought up the word collective um, and also going back to solving the problems of the world again, global climate change, um, uh, justice. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm going to, you know, go on a limbs here and say that one person will have a hard time resolving all these problems. Um, and we can have wonderful people like Greta Thunberg who could really uh, go in and make a difference. But at the end of the day, she's recognized for mobilizing and, and doing it as part of a collective. Um, how can we think about school, um, learner-centered schools, any kind of school, any kind of learning experience, activism, maybe going beyond the, the K-12 to age and, and learning uh, as, as a lifelong process? How could we think about the experience of learning and demonstrating understanding as a collective effort in order to lead to change? Can things change? Yeah, this is a really good question. Yeah, re really good question. And so I, there are two uh, frameworks that I um, rely on to, to think about this. One is, what are we really trying to achieve in, in schools? When we talked about empowering learners, what, what does that really mean? So I've done a bunch of research on different outcome frameworks, and they all have three or four dimensions to them. One of them is internal to the self. What do you know? What's your sense of purpose? Uh, how it, you know, how empowered do you feel uh, to achieve that sense of purpose? Then there's another one about how you relate to other individuals, uh, and another about how you exist in community. Some of the frameworks, like Fidel's 4D model, has metacognition as a, a fourth category. I like to think of it as three, where metacognition cuts across. So, but essentially, I think we need to be developing that sense of self. Uh, which I call agency as a shorthand, how we interact with others, which I call collaboration, uh, which requires empathy, communication, listening. Uh, and then problem solving is how you contribute in your communities. You need all three of these things to be developed to make a meaningful difference. So that's one framework. Another framework, which uh, comes more from just my studies of, of leadership. You say, well, what is leadership? Leadership is not a title, it's not a position, it is uh, how you generate a movement. How you, and, and the way that that happens is you have a sense of purpose, you have participants, and you use feedback to take that community and move in the direction of that shared purpose uh, over time, and you make progress uh, to that aspiration. So those two different frameworks, the learner outcomes, agency, collaboration, problem solving, and then what I call the learner-centered leadership model of purpose, participation, and feedback. Those are two ways in which I think we can get from individual to collective uh, learning and leadership that, that actually contributes to a better and world. How would that look like in a school? Uh, that is, that is, I mean, it's, 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 it sounds, it's, it's a, it's a important question given all the constraints that we have. And I guess it, it leads up to, to the thought of, do these changes happen on the fringe 
or can they ha where where they have probably at the beginning very little influence or at the center, but then you're looking at in, uh, huge boulders to move to get there. Right. Well, sometimes people tell me I have too many frameworks in my mind, so forgive me for for for. for but I think they're important because they're models about how you interact their schema, if you will. But uh, I like the Rogers Innovation Curve with an overlay of social networks. So the Rogers Innovation Curve, which comes from Everett Rogers, he was a sociologist. He did study of change in systems, starting with agriculture. What he found was that when you would introduce, for example, a new type of seed uh, in farming, there were a small, very small number of farmers that would just try it, no matter what. Then they were they were what he called the innovators. Turns out mathematically, it's about one percent of a given population. And then there's another group, which is the early adopters, uh, closer to about 15% that won't necessarily try everything, but they'll try most new things, even if they're not validated. Then, you know, this Rogers curve looks like a bell curve. Then in the middle, you have this majority in the middle, and they watch and wait, and they see what happens with the innovators and the early adopters. And if something works well, uh, then they'll, they'll, they'll take it on. Uh, and so often the way, and then there's a small group at the end that is called either the resistors or laggards, but this is very, very slow to change. So in this model, the way that change happens is it's on the fringes, as you said, usually slowly at first. And then once it's validated, bang, like the majority can happen. So it's slowly, slowly, and then suddenly is the model. But the only way that works, and the reason I mentioned the social networks is you have to have Again, that uh, exchange, the communication from the innovators and early adopters to the majority in the middle, and there has to be trust between them. So if you don't have that social connection, what ends up happening is that that, that innovative fringe improves a lot, and they get farther away from the majority. Uh, and so part of the reason I'm sharing these models is in education, what I've been seeing is there has been this fringe of learner-centered education really focusing on agency, collaboration, problem solving. You see it in design thinking schools. You see it in, in lots of these uh, uh, settings that are exceptional at the moment. And what we need is this social uh, connection so that we have the space for the diffusion of innovation. Because what I've seen is these models are, are converging around some real common practices like shifting the competency-based reporting instead of uh, traditional letter grades, uh, shifting to more um, authentic application of learning instead of, uh, you know, uh, like a, a simulation in a classroom. And so there are these common practices emerging in these schools. And if we can, if we can have that social connection with the majority, we're gonna see a rapid change at some point in the not too distant future. And it can happen anywhere because when you look at where these schools are, I share often the example of a, a school where I was superintendent. Uh, it was a struggling school. We changed the learning model and all of a sudden, you know, outcomes were tremendously improved. It went from a school where we, we were having a hard time attracting and retaining students and staff to having long wait lists. It, 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 it was the same building, the same people, just a different approach. So that tells me it can happen anywhere. Uh, in spite of whatever constraints we perceive. 
And uh, again, I'm optimistic that we're pretty close to getting to a tipping point where we'll go from the fringes to mainstream with a new model of teaching and learning in the near future. And that goes back to this idea that you're, I mean, to, to echo what you're saying, that these things are happening. What we need to do is scream it from the rooftops so that people stop being idealists and, and start thinking about possibilities. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And that, I mean, it's one of the reasons I appreciate what you're doing. And, you know, there are other uh, conveners and, and, you know, people doing podcasts, creating the space for conversations so that we can share some of these things that we're seeing because it is happening. Uh, I can't remember who said this. It's some sci-fi writer that just said the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And that, that is very much the case. So I, I'm anxious for us to have it more evenly distributed uh, because all kids deserve access to empowering, meaningful learning experiences. I'm going to ask you two more questions. Uh, the first one um, is, what are you reading right now? Well, I've been having some great conversations with Benna Kalik, and she sent me two books that I'm reading. One is called Assessment Strategies for Self-Directed Learning, and the other is called Assessment in the Learning Organization. So it's you know well-timed that you're asking me all these questions about assessment, but uh, we're in the process of trying to design a self-assessment, uh, a learner-centered self-assessment. And it's a very complex project, and it's great to be able to connect with deep thinkers like Ben Akalik, who have been doing this kind of thing for a long time. So that's what I'm reading these days. And so that's going to lead me to my second question, which is maybe you can um, uh, tell us a little bit more perhaps, or what are some of the projects that you're working on, some of the things that you're thinking about, some of the, the, the challenges that you want to, uh, to uh, you know, break through? Uh, there's so, so many exciting projects these days. Uh, I just touched on a couple. One was... Uh, we helped uh, a school district not far from where I live to co-design a learner-centered virtual academy uh, because, you know, as we know through the pandemic, virtual learning has become more ubiquitous. And this is a school district that, um, like most, did emergency remote learning and recognized they need something uh, more enduring. And so uh, we took them through our learner-centered framework that begins with identifying whole learner outcomes and then designing learning experiences that align with that, and then also focusing on the enabling conditions uh, to create those experiences to lead to those outcomes. So that, that was a, a, a really fun project that's uh, just launched. Uh, we've also been doing a project in the state of Texas called the Texas Learning Exchange, helping uh, districts to navigate through the pandemic uh, and we're about to do some direct work with uh, some Texas districts uh, to align their strategy with a much more learner-centered type of approach. And, um, and then I mentioned, you know, developing this learner-centered self-assessment. So those would be three projects that I'm, I'm pretty excited about these days. Yeah. Appreciate your time. Thanks for doing what you do. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Troy. Thank you so much for listening. Really excited to uh, have uh, had the opportunity to speak to Devin uh, and hopefully we found it to have an enriching conversation. Um, I'd like to encourage you to subscribe, leave some stars, and uh, we'll let you know what is on plans for the Coconut Thinking Podcast. 
We will have Jane Bryan, ex-CEO of the Ken Robinson Foundation on, as well as uh, Luca Perry, who is uh, an amazing mind and kind human being. We have a two-part series um, on uh, a conversation on his podcast, this podcast, and we hope to cross-pollinate uh, and share some ideas out there. So again, thank you so much for listening. Leave us comments. Come check us out on our blog, www.coconut-thinking.design. And we look forward to speaking with you soon and uh, off to the next episode. Thank you.